0: God's intention is that the many-sided complicated wisdom of God may be demonstrated by the church to the principalities and powers. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. The church through her resurrection and ascension with Christ is already legally on the throne. Through the use of her weapons of prayer and faith She holds in this present world the balance of power in world affairs. In spite of all her lamentable weaknesses, appalling failures, and indefensible shortcomings, the Church is the mightiest force for civilization and enlightened social consciousness in the world. The only force that is contesting Satan's total rule in human affairs is the Church of the Living God. This is her on-the-job training for eventual rulership of the universe with her Lord in the world to come. Paul Bellheimer, destined for the throne. I'm painfully aware of how many real, sincere followers of Jesus don't know how to pray. Now you'd think in the face of our current and ever-increasing crises that prayer meetings would become a regular and well-attended event. But though that's true in some places, they are not the rule. They're the exception. I don't think the lack of attendance can be blamed on stupid indifference. At least that can't be true of thinking awake spiritually minded people. No, I think people stay away in droves from prayer meetings because number one, they don't know how to pray. And or number two, They do not want to spend valuable time in a group of people who do not know how to pray. There are few things more completely mind-numbing than to sit in a supposed prayer meeting that is meant to focus on intercession, repentance, and hearing from God, only to find yourself trying to not jump out the nearest window as the third or fourth or tenth person requests prayer For the neighbor of a cousin who lives in Albuquerque and is going in for his third surgery or or whatever. Now please don't misunderstand me. I know the neighbor's cousin is himself a precious human being with just as valid a need for prayer as any other. But with no connection of heart to the situation and no clear path of what or how to pray for him, it becomes a hugely disheartening and energy-draining religious ritual that releases little, if any, power into the cousin's situation. Worse, it is not the purpose of the prayer gathering to pray for this and that relative or surgery. It's just the sad fact that most Christians don't know what to do with prayer gatherings, and they don't know how to effectively take that time for its purpose to be fulfilled with deliberate vision. So we end up making a grocery list of various people we think might need supernatural aid, and who doesn't? And then we go down the grocery list, usually praying aimless, unscriptural words that seem compassionate and make us feel that we are at least doing something spiritual and caring. To any who have prayed this way for their entire Christian life, I probably sound terribly critical and uncaring but I'm not being critical and I'm not uncaring there's a vast sea of of potential that's untapped that could make all the difference in the world for both the cousin who needs prayer for his surgery as well as the other larger issues that we gather to pray into Larger, I don't mean larger in the sense that it's more important than the cousin who needs prayer. I just mean there are times when the purpose of prayer is on a larger scale than praying for an individual. Precious and valuable as the individual may be. I'll tell you, when I've had loved ones that are in trouble, I'm deeply grateful for people who will pray for that person. So please, let me stress, I'm not making light of that. I'm just saying, let's learn to use proper weapons in their proper context. And there is a place for individual, a prayer for individual people, but the church doesn't know anything, hardly, about praying uh, for larger issues, national issues, international issues, things of that nature. So, sadly, I've had to do a lot of teaching before I've been able to enter into any Uh, Praying with certain groups over the past few years. It's very discouraging to often have to seem like a bully and interrupt prayers in order to pull the prayer back to the main purpose. But for those who do not end up hating me and leaving, there's a great advance in real effective prayer if they can stick with it. There are times for praying for one's neighbor's cousin and for this and that surgical procedure. And since this is so well known and practiced, we won't have to ever mention it again in this context, will we? But can't we go beyond the basic elementary beginnings of prayer? It would be certainly wrong to make fun of little children learning to pray. But is it not equally wrong for grown men and women of some years of spiritual maturity to still be childish in their approach to prayer? I didn't say childlike, but childish especially where spiritual battle is concerned. Uh, scripture tells us concerning practicing evil, we should be like children. But when it comes to confronting evil, we should be grown men and women. Now, the logical question rises, why has God ordained prayer? More specifically, why has he ordained intercessory prayer? For that's the specific kind of prayer we're aiming at here. When we list the top reasons why people don't pray, that may tell us automatically why God set up prayer the way he has, for in order to ever enter into prayer on the level I'm talking about, a person has to deal honestly and even ruthlessly with all these hindrances to prayer that I'm going to mention. And the fact reveals why God set prayer up in order to Confront those blockages, expose them, and overcome them. Reasons to pray. Number one, and you may add to this list, but this is the list that I've come up with over the years. The number one reason to pray is simply to interact with God. How else would you ever relate to Him if you don't talk to Him? And since he's God and knows everything anyway, if you're hindered by the knowledge that he already knows and therefore you shouldn't, you shouldn't tell him, it would kind of be like a child who never talks to his father because he thinks his father knows everything. And the idea is in that context, the only reason he ever talks to his father is to communicate information his father lacks. No, kids don't just talk to their father to give him information he lacks. They talk to him just to talk. In fact, at certain ages, both boys and girls can talk your head clean off, telling you all kind of things and excited about telling you, not so much because they think you don't know, but because they just want to communicate. So the first reason to pray is to have a relationship. The second reason to pray is to show submissive humility. When we talk to God, we are expressing our awareness of our dependence and our uh, our position of being under his care, which brings us to number three. Prayer is the greatest manifestation of faith. The very act of prayer is a demonstration of faith. You say, I don't have any faith. Tell God you don't have any faith the moment you start talking to God about feeling like you don't have any faith, you are manifesting the greatest faith because Hebrews 11 says, whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So the moment you say to God, Lord, I don't know how to pray, or Lord, I don't have any faith, or Lord, I don't know what to say when I pray, the moment you say childlike Dependent, submissive, humble prayers like that, you're manifesting the greatest faith you can manifest because you're expressing to God your confidence that He's there and that He cares and that He's listening. Number four, we pray in order to exert our priestly role in the universe. Now I'm going to spend a lot more time on this in the remainder of our time here, so I'm not going to dwell on it now. Number five, we pray to learn to deal with spiritual realities. Only a person who has never prayed has hard time believing in the reality of spiritual warfare and spiritual pressure. If you've ever set yourself to pray, you immediately begin to encounter strange resistances, either outwardly in circumstances or inside your own head. Number six, we pray to make our lives a conduit for God's grace. When we pray, we make ourselves a, a uh, extension of His power and grace into the situation for which we're praying. And then number seven, we pray in order to act in total opposition to the spirit of the world, which never thinks to pray because it is its own God. Now, let's look at a few reasons why we don't pray. Number one, people don't pray, and this is more common than you might think. They don't pray because they think everything is already settled by divine providence, and so why bother telling God or asking God anything? Number two, they feel false guilt or false humility, which sometimes is... The same thing, and think that if they pray, they're being presumptuous. Number three, and this may be the most common one, they don't know what to say. Now, for those in category number one who think everything is already settled by providence and therefore there's no reason to add to God's uh, already uh, explicit knowledge of things, Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30 says, I sought for a man or woman among them who would stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that I might not destroy the land, but I could not find one. Psalm 106, verse 23, God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen, stood before God in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Isaiah 59 verse 16 The Lord saw that there was no man and was appalled that there was no intercessor. First Samuel chapter 12 verse 23 God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. From these few verses and there are many more we could cite it's clear that God has determined that his actions on the earth are I don't know any other way to say it. Dependent on the prayers of his people. This is not because he needs them to inform him, for he already knows. And it's not because he needs them to beg him, for he already longs to bring mercy. It is not because he needs permission, because he is sovereign over the universe and can do whatever he will, wills. Yet it is a scriptural fact that though he is sovereign, in that sovereignty He gave the earth to man, who in turn gave it to Satan. Scriptures such as Matthew chapter 4, 1 John chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 6, and a host of other biblical as well as historical examples, underscores the fact that for God's own reasons, he has allowed Satan to establish his dark kingdom strongholds on this earth through the cooperation of fallen man. He then has ordained that men and women born of his spirit and washed in his blood are to take our rightful place on the earth as his co-regents. We are to rule in life by Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4. We are to retake this occupied territory until, as Revelation 11 says, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah. And we rule by praying. We pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it already is in heaven. So it seems that God ordained prayer as the training school in which his people learn to discern his will and then learn to persevere in the battle of, of prayer till the manifestation of the prayer comes. Only those who've never been in this kind of battle understand, uh, fail to understand the reality of the very real struggle, the taxing demand, the stretching of the soul that occurs in certain kinds of prayer. This is not true of every kind of prayer, but a certain kind of prayer awakens this Awareness of being stretched and and of struggle and of, of having to persevere, and this is the very reason this kind of prayer was meant uh, for us. Every believer should eventually enter this kind of battle at some point in life, because it is in this very pressure of entering such prayer that all three of the blockages to prayer listed previously are removed. We see through maturing spiritual eyes the terrible condition of a certain situation. We seek God's face about that situation till we gain his mind on that situation. Then we pray that the will of God would be brought into the earth in that situation. This is the work of a kingdom of priests. Kings rule. Priests make intercession. Revelation one five calls us a kingdom of priests for that reason. Now we know God has not set everything in cement, that he has sovereignly left aspects of human history's outcome in the hands of his people. If we don't pray into being that which he desires, then much good will never happen. But let's say it much more positively, when we do take up our place and responsibility, and align ourselves with the birthing power of the Spirit, many things are brought into being for good that would never have been brought into being had we not cooperated with the creative, redemptive grace of God in prayer. Knowing this, we can quickly dispose of the second reason people don't pray. If you remember that, the second reason people don't pray is false guilt and or false humility. If you go to your feelings to see if you are worthy to come into the presence of God, you will almost certainly be defeated before you begin. Not only are your feelings subject to all sorts of false influences, moods, digestion, immaturity, etc., But the enemy of your soul, the accuser who fears your prayers, can easily stir up a case against you in the courtroom of your own mind. Your authority to enter and to pray is in the blood of Christ, not in how good you feel about your goodness. We find our power in the word of God and nowhere else. And that word says we are positionally, that is, in God's eyes, In Christ, it's a study in itself to go through the letters of Paul and just underline how many times he makes reference to us being in Christ. Regardless of how much sense that does or doesn't make to you, it simply means that the Father has made you so connected to your Savior and Lord that you and Jesus share the same authority in his name. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. We're not using his name as a rubber stamp or as a talisman or as a magical uh, spell, but simply acknowledging that the union that we have with him is what gives us our power to pray. Guilt is false when it still comes after we have repented and asked God's forgiveness. Guilt that moves us to repent is a good thing, guilt that keeps banging on us after we've asked God's forgiveness is an unhealthy and false thing. You always say as I have before in my own life, well, yeah, but what about the areas where you keep falling and keep stumbling? That's the areas where you come into the presence of the Lord the most. That that's the that's the thing you bring into his presence the most. The enemy would keep you away from the presence of God by reminding you of your repeated failures when the fact is the more you fail, the more dependent you are on his grace, and that should cause you to come to him more and more and more. And when the enemy sees that you've learned that lesson, he backs off and stops stops pressing you on that area. Uh, the only way I'm alive today is because I learned to come to God with my mess. And I'd come to him with my mess over and over and over. But I kept coming to him because, number one, I knew I had nowhere else to turn. And number two, I knew that I couldn't clean myself up enough to then be worthy to come to him. I, at some point, had to start taking his promises as if they're true. The moment I did that, I moved into a realm of faith that pleases him no end. And because of that, he was able to give me grace upon grace upon grace to deal with my stumbling upon stumbling upon stumbling until grace helped me overcome the stumbling. And though he, of course, is very patient and gentle with us on this subject, we need to understand that waiting for the right feelings inside of us before we obey his call to prayer is a childish presumption and an insult to his grace. Also, it's not humility to grovel and feel unworthy and confess the same sins over and over. At some point, we need to begin to thank him that he who has begun a good work in us is bringing it to completion And then forget ourselves and move into the place of prayer where we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit on behalf of other people, other situations than ourselves. People still ask, and I understand why they ask, what if I have some besetting sin? I keep falling into it over and over. That's all the more reason to pray over and over, to keep coming in over and over. See, you keep exposing yourself to Him, and learn to express yourself to him and learn to listen to him for his direction. And by doing that, you're automatically overcoming the broken issues in your life as well as learning how to pray and how to listen to God all at the same time. For as you pray this way, you find your own weak fleshly patterns of repeated sins diminishing and fading and losing power. But see, the enemy, who is a master of religion, loves religion, loves guilt, he would rather you, uh, of course, uh, keep thinking you've got to correct yourself enough to then be worthy to come into his presence. Now, when you start thinking you've corrected yourself enough that you're now worthy to come into his presence, you've moved into a, a much worse place than whatever your besetting sin was. Now you've moved into a place of uh, uh, fleshly righteousness, which uh, is really just filthy rags. You come dependent. You come childlike. You come with confidence in his grace. And that way, nothing ever keeps you out of prayer. No, go- no feeling of guilt. No feeling of condemnation. No true feeling of guilt that is resulted from a real sin. That, even that will not keep you out of the presence of God. You cannot stand in that presence and unite with Him that closely as you do in, in the kind of prayer I'm talking about and not be changed more and more into His image. The enemy is happy for you to pray groveling, guilty, I'm a dirty old sinner prayers. He loves those prayers, for it keeps real prayer from happening and keeps God's people depressed but religious, ineffective but prayerful. Yes, of course, there are times when the presence of God may be so heavy that it awakens the awareness of our smallness, our weakness, our sinfulness. But still, When God comes to us that way, it is never to put a shoe on our neck and grind us into the dirt. It is to show us we are invited up into that very presence. The high priest of Israel went into the holiest of all as a representative for the people. He went where they could never go. But the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus went into the heavenly holiest of all, not as our representative, but as our forerunner, paving the way where he wants us to follow him. So we, by faith, not feelings, throw off the old self-hating vision of our unworthiness and take up our place in Christ, as a king and priest, and we need to get on with that work since there is so much that needs to be done in the arena of prayer. It is the intercession of God's people calling for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven that provides God a runway for landing in the middle of whatever situation they are bringing up in prayer. Somehow, in ways we do not and need not understand, he has ordained that human frail mortals washed in his blood and filled with his spirit are the most powerful beings in the universe, for our union with him makes us the deciding factor in the war for our planet. So that takes us to the third reason why people don't pray. They don't know what to say. Well, if you understand everything we've said so far, then this third block automatically evaporates. You begin to have all kinds of things you know you can say. Now, this means we must be sensitive to his voice and enter into what is on his heart before we begin just slinging words in the air. Are you burdened for a lost child? That burden is from him. So you know he is moving on you to take your rightful place as a ruling priest on that child's behalf. Then you take the promises of God that pertain to that issue and you begin decreeing them up to God in faith that he loves them more than you do, that he is moving on their behalf for their good and God's glory. It is worse than useless to pray as if God must be talked into saving your loved ones. You're not influencing him. He's influencing you. You're not gaining him on your side. He's calling you to his side. You'll find then, as you begin to pray this way, that your vocabulary for prayer begins to enlarge and grow not only larger, but more articulate. When the prayer gets too big for English, he provides other languages that can accommodate beyond what you in your limited language, can express. The only, this only shows how important it is to him that we pray. Why would he provide supernatural support for our speaking his will into the earth? This must be very high on his priority list to provide for it in such a supernatural way. And what is the usual response? Those who embrace it tend to rarely use it. And the rest of the church, in amazing arrogance, declares that it's either passed away with the first century or is, quote, the least of the gifts and therefore of no value. Imagine, by the way, anybody saying that any gift from God is least and then treating it as it is therefore of no value. But that's another subject we won't take time to pursue here. Now, once you know these principles and you begin to meditate on them until they begin to, to renew your mind, then you're ready to set a time and place apart. I know you can pray anywhere. You can pray behind your steering wheel. I do all the time. You can pray while you're washing the dishes. I do all the time. Pray while you're cooking. Everybody prays while I'm cooking, but that's another subject. You can pray anywhere, but there are certain levels of prayer that require a setting apart to God. I can't show you chapter and verse on that. It's just spiritual common sense. But at any rate, once you renew your mind in the areas we've talked about so far, that sets you up to begin to move into prayer on purpose. Stir yourself to prayer. When you don't feel like praying, it is a signal that you are in a great position to be very effective in prayer. If you don't believe in demons, all you got to do is start praying like I'm talking about, and you will find out that they are right at your elbow. Telling you every reason why you shouldn't pray, giving you all kinds of ridiculous reasons, any, I mean anything, anything to get you not to pray. Now that we know God has not set everything in stone already, that there are many aspects of our lives and the lives of nations that are potentially alterable for good, now that we know our prayers are vitally important for the bringing forth uh, of change for redemption, that should stir us up. I often have to stir myself. I have to stir myself to prayer. This is the natural force of my fleshly laziness that seeks to pull me into any direction other than on my knees. Don't need the devil to do it. My flesh will do it. But add to that the enemy's influence, however that works into it. And it becomes necessary to keep myself moved toward prayer. And I do that with Scripture and with Testimonies of wiser, more mature saints who have gone before us and left us uh, an example to follow. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. From the beginning, no one has seen any God like you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 7. There is none who calls upon you. There is none who stirs up himself to take hold of you. There is certainly a place for contemplation, stillness, and worshipful silence before God. And there is not a place for silence also. When entering into intercession, that is not the place for quiet contemplative prayer. But there is a strong religious spirit whose job description from hell is to keep powerful prayer from happening through your lips. It rocks Christians to sleep with the lazy, drowsy, whispered prayers of the typical churchy atmosphere. I don't mean to be disrespectful to those who have only known this kind of praying, both in public and in their own private prayers. And in its place, quiet is right. But out of its place, quiet is wrong. It hinders the kinds of praying Scripture both describes and commands. Yet it is among the believers who are most known for claiming to be biblical that strong, emotive, expressive praying is not only not practiced, but considered emotionalism and therefore is dismissed completely. A few important and neglected words might help us here. James 5, verse 16. The effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man or woman causes much power to be released. The word effectual here is energizo, energetic. Fervent, zeo in Greek, means to boil, to, to, to burst up with heat. The energetic, boiling prayer of a righteous man or woman releases energy, God's energy. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus in the days of his flesh offered up prayers with loud crying and tears. Loud shrieking, actually, is the word in Greek, kroge. Loud shrieking. This word, if you look up at any Greek dictionary, it means loud streaking, unearthly screaming. Did you I didn't write it? Romans fifteen thirty, strive together with me in your prayers. The word is strive and the Greek is agonize. To agonize uh, refers to an athletic game or warfare. It refers to the stringent demands made on spirit, soul, and body in order to win the game or win the battle. And it cannot be done. The very nature of the word itself cannot be accomplished silently and contempt con- contemptively. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand mature and complete. Both words together, striving, agonize, fervently, boiling. So Epaphras in his prayers for the Colossians was always boiling in agony on their behalf in prayer. Now, can you picture boiling in agony, uh, silently, uh, in a corner somewhere. I suppose you might be able to conjure that up, but that's not the idea in the scriptures and it's it's not really physically possible. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus said. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19, I travail in birth again till Christ is formed in you. This, this word, travail, sunodino in Greek, birth pangs. And the idea is birth pangs open up the way for birth, for something new. That's the meaning of the word in Greek. It opens up the possibility for something to come forth that has not been able to come forth yet. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but our wrestling match is with principalities and powers. Paul lists the whole armor of warfare, then closes that list by summing it all up with the phrase, praying, with all kinds of prayer and supplication in the Spirit. For Paul, the greatest demonstration of faith is the action of prayer. When you read Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God, you read about the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit and the helmet of salvation and the girdle of truth and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You put all that armor on and then what do you do? You go to your knees. All that armor is meant to be uh, the accoutrements you need in order to enter the battle and you enter the battle in prayer. Now, this is a kind of prayer that I'm, I'm sorry to say most of the church just doesn't know anything about. At least a good, a good portion of the church in America. The church of the, uh, throughout the world, they know about it because they were birthed in that kind of prayer. But when, uh, when Paul talks here about uh, wrestling, He's not talking, by the way, about personally challenging and taking hold of demonic powers in your own strength and challenging them and commanding them and all kind of other goofy things that have been propagated uh, by certain uh, charismatic false ideas or wrong-headed ideas. Um, You begin to challenge principalities and powers as if you had power over them in your own strength, uh, you'll find out the hard way uh, that you don't, and that you don't have scriptural authority to do it. And uh, once you begin to move in this kind of prayer, you you find that there's aspects of it that really belong only in corporate prayer. It really shouldn't happen alone. There are certain kinds of prayer battles that I've, I've learned not to engage in on my own. Uh, I do it with our prayer team. And there are things that come out of those kinds of corporate prayers that are much larger and much clearer and much more decisive than I could do on my own. And so much of the exhortations in the New Testament about these things are never addressed to the individual. We Americans who think everything is about us individually read the scriptures that way. You know, Christ in you, the hope of glory. No, that's not what it says in the Greek text. Christ in you all, the hope of glory. And almost every time Paul is addressing you, he's using the plural in the Greek. Because the New Testament is not an American document meant to uh, uh, address your own private individual Christian, uh, um, you know, your own uh, personalized version of whatever God's kingdom is about. But you're to be part of the body and part of the family of God, and this is why it's so important for us to have prayer partners. For those of you who live, by the way, in rather isolated areas where you don't have a lot of fellowship and you're not really able to participate in in congregational life with a church that really understands these things, where two or three are gathered in my name— Just, if you can get two or three of you uh, who understand these things and begin to listen together and begin to pray together, you will see remarkable uh, progress beginning to be made in whatever you set yourself to focus on in prayer. This is, of course, especially true for, for couples, husbands and wives. I mean, you you should be learning how to pray together. I'm freaked out by the number of couples I know personally, have encountered personally, who don't pray together. But uh, maybe this will help uh, broaden your vision and awaken that in you. I, mean, I don't see how anybody could hear what I'm talking about and not immediately want to go into it. Now listen, uh, in closing, I want to read to you uh from a wonderful, wonderful book, you should have it. You should get it by Arthur Matthews, called "Born for Battle." And uh, this is one of those books that I keep right near me all the time uh, because when I read it, it's uh, it's like it's like uh, taking uh, vitamins, prayer vitamins. And I want to read to you here from a chapter where he describes why God would set prayer up so that physical, uh, demonstrative, vocal, loud, for lack of a better word, praying, has its place. And I'm just going to read this uh, as it is because I don't want to skip any of the important aspects of it. We are victorious as we want to be. Lack of inner victory cannot be blamed on anyone but ourselves. Each man has his own measuring cup and measures out the quantity of victory he desires. Beyond that, for some perverse reason, we will not stretch ourselves. There are some, however, who have a different spirit. What a rebuke the testimony of their warfare for Christ is to those who are content with scanty, victories one with a strong testimony was pastor sai in china prior to his conversion he was an avid opium smoker and a cultured confucianist but when he became a new creation in christ what a change one of the first things he did was to take a new name for himself this was in order to proclaim to the world and to the devil the new direction his life was now going to take he called himself conqueror of demons He wanted to express his sense of being enlisted for life in God's army in the warfare against the powers of darkness. To a man who had grown up in terror of evil spirits and had known the power of sin's bondage, it took more than courage to call himself the devil's overcomer. It showed the reality of his faith in God and his willingness to trust in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to give victory over all the power of the enemy. In Christ's name, he was determined to possess his possessions and claim all that was his of victory through the death, resurrection, and exaltation to the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of the Savior he now loved, he wanted his cup of victory to be filled to the brim. Jehoash, grandson of Israel's King Jehu, was not such a man. He could only believe for a limited victory. The story of this weak and wicked king is linked to the last recorded incident in the life of Elijah the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 13. It's the story of two sick men. Elisha is dying of a terminal illness. Sixty years have gone by since his call to succeed Elijah, and for the last 45 of these years nothing has been heard of him. The other sick man is the king Jehoash. He's sick with his own inner corruption, and also with shame at the humiliation of Israel under Haziel, Syria's cruel king. The strategic arms limitation that had been imposed on him since the days of his father allowed him no scope of retaliation and breaking free of the bondage imposed by Haziel. What can he possibly do with fifty horsemen and ten chariots? Hearing of the sickness of Elijah, Jehoash decides to visit the prophet to see if there is some way out of his dilemma. Entering the prophet's chamber, he sobs out his problem, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. For years Elisha has been silently watching the judgments fall on the house of Jehu as the Lord begins to cut Israel short. Now at last, the opportunity comes to him on his deathbed to teach a lesson on how victory may be won. He gives his attention to the king, but it seems as though he has barely enough strength to gasp out his instructions. Take the bow and the arrows. Open the window toward the east and shoot. The prophet must have realized this would be his last chance to stir the king to strive for victory for his humiliated people. In this object lesson with the bow and arrows, we find simple victory rules that lead to an understanding of the part we must play if we are to rise above the shame of our defeats in Christian living. Demonstrate your intention to fight. Peace at any price is not the language of God's prophet. He wants to instill in the heart of the defeated king the determination to try for victory at any cost. Tears of remorse over the state of the kingdom under his leadership are not enough. How futile is much of our wailing over our defeats and over the sick state of society around us. The first step to victory is to take up our weapons with the determination to go all out for victory. The counterpart of Elisha's command, take the bow and arrows, is in the words of the apostle Paul, take the sword of the Spirit. Is there sin in your life and bitter defeat? Then take up your weapons of the Spirit and declare war. Today, the message of victory is being misrepresented and cheapened and diluted by Christians who are content with lowered standards and limited victory because in their hearts they do not really want freedom and victory. Put your hands upon the bow, and Elisha laid his hands over the king's hands. This speaks of reckoning on divine faithfulness. When utter failure and impotence moves with honesty to seek victory, it will find its total weakness encompassed by God's strength. God identifies himself with obedient weakness. Did you get that? God identifies himself with obedient weakness. That's what I'm talking about. When you come to God with your sin, with your failure, you're trembling, you're ashamed, you feel prayerless, you feel like you have no right to pray, you come into the presence of God in that condition, trembling. God identifies himself with obedient weakness. The rule for victory is is this, our hand on the weapon and his hand over ours. God is saying to us in this, as he puts his mighty hand over ours, the battle is not yours, but God's. Putting the hand to the bow is faith's reckoning on the divine faithfulness and claiming, the fight which I now fight, I fight in the faithfulness of the Son of God. Open the window toward the east. In other words, open up toward your source of defeat, your area of failure. Face the place in your heart where the proud enemy boasts his victories. Israel's foe was to the east. The rule here is that victory arrows cannot be shot through closed windows. There are hidden things we are all afraid of and afraid to face, specifically things that cannot be glossed over as weaknesses inherited from others, but are our own weaknesses. If we are to be victorious, the windows must be opened on each thing that defeats our attempts to live as God would have us live. This will expose the failures of the past and present to the hand that controls ours, which we have on the weapon. It could be the biggest need in your life just now is to open the windows. Shoot and be shot. Put action to your faith. The arrow in itself may seem ineffectual to deal with the particular enemy that harasses us, but the Lord claims it as his own arrow. Elisha says to the king, the Lord's arrow of victory, victory over Syria. Faith that acts will bring the foe to his knees or send him scurrying off. So far, so good. The king has shot his arrow, but there's more to the lesson than that. And this is kind of a strange part that most of us seem to not grasp. Now take the arrows and hit the ground with them. In other words, let's see what's inside of you. How he responds to this command and invitation will demonstrate what is already going on inside of his heart. There's nothing hocus-pocus about this. It's very straightforward. How he responds to the invitation and command to strike the ground, whether he does it with virulence and and confidence and fire, or whether he does it half-heartedly, will determine what's going on in him and how the battle will eventually unfold. He strikes the ground three times. And then stops and looks at Elijah for more instructions. And Elijah becomes angry at him. He says, why didn't you strike the ground five or six times? This is not magic. This is not hocus pocus. This is basically, I love what Arthur Green says. He sums it up by saying, let it be said to Jehoash's shame. He didn't believe enough so he didn't obey enough. It's what happens in the secret chamber that determines the amount of victory we have in the actual battle of life. Though there has been failure in the past, the future, by God's grace, is always redeemable. So let me stop and ask here, based on all that we've said for the last 45 minutes or so. What's your prayer life like? God God is perfectly happy for you to talk to him driving to work, to talk to him in the hustle and bustle of the day, to send telegrams to him, to just sing to him, love him. That's what practicing the presence of Jesus is all about. And we should all live that way. It's perfectly right for you to live that way. But that's only one level of life in prayer. It's a good level. I'm not saying that you're lacking in, in love of the Lord, if that's all you engage in. But it certainly is lacking in faith. It's lacking in believing what the Word of God invites you to, to go further up and further in. And to broaden your vision and to see the purposes of God released in the lives of those you care about in situations and circumstances that you're engaged in. And if you are wrestling with flesh and blood and always thinking of every circumstance as being a human battle between human personalities and uh, getting angry and getting frustrated, uh, then you'll stay. you'll stay in a very low level of, of victory. You don't have to do that. And now that we're facing a time of national and international crisis, crisis on on the very borders of utter disaster, then by all means, it's time for you to take everything that I've said to you for the last 50 minutes and and re-engage with it until your mind is thoroughly reprogrammed in alignment with taking on your place, uh, your authority as a king and priest, and ruling in life by Christ Jesus in prayer. Finding the scriptures that apply to your situation, finding the scriptures that apply to the national situation, to the international situation, and begin to cry out to God. and Lift up your voice. And, uh, you know, uh, you need to be able to lift up your voice. That's really a whole nother teaching. But there's a wonderful little book by uh, uh, someone you might not expect uh, to write such a book. It's called The Power of Crying Out. And it's a book on prayer. And it's a book on the kind of prayer that lifts up its voice in desperation and uh, uh, humility and... uh, not being concerned with keeping your dignity but throwing yourself into the arms of God and uh, Bill Gothard wrote it and uh, I, I really appreciated that little book I think I let it walk off but uh, the power of crying out lift up your voice you know clap your hands oh ye people shout unto God with a voice of triumph Uh Psalm forty-seven uh, is a is a psalm of warfare. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Clap your hands, all you people. Well, we don't do that in our church. We say, "Well, I guess that's why your church has a very limited uh, capacity to penetrate dark powers and break their yokes off people." Folks, listen. I don't. I don't. Christians are living in all kinds of bondage, all kinds of besetting sin, all kinds of secret failure, all kinds of darkness that they're mixing into their life and thinking grace covers it. When grace is never meant to cover sin, Uh, Titus chapter 2 tells us, the grace of God has appeared to all men teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to uh, live purely, soberly, and righteously in this present evil world. Uh, that's what grace does. Grace teaches us how to live above that stuff. But as uh, Arthur Green just said so well, I want to read it one more time to underscore it. Uh Jehoash's failure to strike the ground three more than three times it caused him to only go into battle and win three battles, but he lost the ultimate war. Let it be said to his shame that he did not believe enough, and so he did not obey enough. I told you a while ago, the greatest demonstration of faith in your life is when you pray. So when you don't pray, It's because you simply don't believe. You don't believe the invitation. You don't believe God will be faithful. You don't believe the promises of God. Because if you did, you would pray. So, let's not end this with uh, some kind of rebuke of your lack of prayer. Why don't you cut off this recorder and pray. Pray.